0: Welcome to Disaffected. I'm Joshua Slocum, and this is the show where we talk about politics, culture, and relationships through a psychological lens. First up, an update to a story we've covered before, justice for Juicy. Jussie Smollett, you remember, claimed that he was out at two in the morning, going to Subway, I think, in Chicago in sub-zero weather, and was homophobically accosted by a couple of guys who told him that this was MAGA country, Trump country because that's what Chicago's really like, put some bleach on him, had a rope and a noose, all that sort of stuff. Well, it never happened. And he got convicted. And the other day, he got sentenced. And this is what he got. $150,000 in fines and restitution, $150 in jail, and 30 months probation. Now, the judge read him the riot act about his histrionics while he was sentencing him. And, well, take a listen to how Jussie responded.
1: I'm fashioning the following sentence, and here's your sentence. I'm sentencing you to 30 months felony probation, and the probation is going to be to this court. You're going to be allowed to travel wherever you want. You do not have to live in the state of Illinois. You can report by phone. I know that if you're going to try to make a living and do some of the things you do, you may have to go to... Uh, other, other places, New York and Los Angeles, you can do those things. You will pay restitution to the city of Chicago in the amount of $120,106. You are fined $25,000, which is the maximum fine. And you will spend the first 150 days of your sentence in the Cook County Jail. And that will start today, right here, right now. Mr. Smollett, though the jury found you guilty and I here sent as I have, You have the right to appeal the findings and rulings of the court, or ask your sentence be modified. To do those things, you need to file a notice of appeal in writing within 30 days. We also file a motion to modify your sentence, which would have to be filed in writing within 30 days. Anything not stated in those filings are waived for purposes of appeal. You cannot afford lawyers or transcripts. They would be provided for your charge. Do you have any questions? No, I would just like to say to your honor that I am not suicidal. (laughs)
0: I respect you, Your Honor. I respect your decision. Jail time? I am not suicidal. Okay. <laughs> I was waiting for. I cannot even. Okay. I cannot even. Jail time? <sighs> How many times do you say I'm not suicidal? <laughs> this is a narcissistic, histrionic display. Because, of course, it is. Who else would do something like this? Who else would hoax a hate crime like this but a clinical narcissist? What you didn't see here, when he walked out of the courtroom, he he, he repeated much of the same thing. He kept saying, I'm not suicidal, but he got louder and louder, and he started yelling. And then he put the Black Power fist up. <laughs> and something he said caught my eye or my ear rather said if I had done this I would have stuck my fist in the fears of the black community and the LGBT community a rather unfortunate metaphor think about it for a second and you'll get it (laughs) it reminded me of what he said when people first accused him of exactly what he did which was a hoax and he said if I had done this, I would not be my mother's son. This is second or third rate right acting, okay? I mean, this guy's supposed to be a professional, but this is not convincing. I, and, and I think what's going on here, I'm speculating, but psychologically... When he says things like, if I had done this, I would not be my mother's son. Or if I had done this, that would mean I would have stuck my fist in the fears of the LGBT community. I think what he's doing is playing on the way most of us think about other people. We like to think that everyone is is good deep down inside. and And he's trying to appeal to that. And he's saying, you know... We don't want to believe that people will do things like like what he did. This is how narcissists get away with a lot of their nonsense. We simply won't believe that someone will actually act this way. And we find it really uncomfortable and we look for reasons um, to disbelieve it. And I think he's playing on that, you know. Well, if you think I'm guilty of this, that means you would have to think that I'd be capable of this. Works for a while, but I guess it's done now. Next topic. Next topic. This is disturbing. There is a man, a father named Jeff Younger. He lives in Texas. He is now running for um, a seat in the 63rd House District in Texas's state legislature. Jeff is divorced from his wife Anne Gorgolis. And in 2019, Jeff lost custody of his children because one of his two children with his ex-wife Anne is allegedly trans and Anne is a pediatrician and she very much wants to trans the boy that she calls Luna. Lots of fighting back and forth, amazing. It seemed to me amazing court deference toward a woman who is arguing That her child is soon going to need to be put on heavy-duty chemicals like Lupron to stop his puberty, which is almost always followed by cross-sex hormones, which results in sterility, permanent sterility. So much court deference to her. Is it because she's a mother? Like, How how do you weigh that out? I'm sure Jeff has his problems, too. How do you look at one parent who wants to medically mutilate a child and say that is the one who should have primary custody, not this guy? Jeff has been through the ringer. Well, the University of North Texas chapter of the Young Conservatives of Texas invited him to speak about the issue of so-called transgender children. This didn't go over well, and a group of protesting students gave us the following. There's a young woman at the front, she is screaming.
1: <laughs> this is what leftist politics looks like. This
0: is what leftist
1: politics looks like. me. She she she,
0: she. Now they're getting up on their on the tables to shout at him. Somebody's got a a pool noodle that they're waving around. Oh my God. What you just saw there, what you heard, that young woman at the front who claims she's trans, there was another clip. I'm sorry, I should have pulled it for you. She had a complete meltdown that looked like a borderline personality disorder style meltdown this screamy sh- ah ah in another clip she was uh, she was literally spittle was coming out of her mouth and she was jabbing her finger get the fuck off my campus get the fuck out of here fuck you fuck you fuck you and she looks like every other butch lesbian since 1970 but she's trans I don't know this woman, I don't know the context, but it sure looks like a borderline meltdown to me. And the whole class got involved with this. This one is what really got me. Listen to their chant. Fashes! Just that drumming and rhythm is intimidating as hell, let alone fucking fascist, fucking fascist. These children, (laughs) I don't even know what to call them. They're not. They're actually chronological adults, but they are children. You know, when I was in school, we had protests about things, too. We had demonstrations. We didn't get this extreme that I remember. We didn't actually infiltrate a classroom. This wasn't just an auditorium. This was a classroom, a large lecture-style classroom. He was an invited speaker by one of the student groups. He didn't get to say anything. And they're all doing it in rhythm, and they're all repeating the chant. It's a mantra. It's like what happens at a, at a tent revival. Mob thinking. No, not thinking. Not, mob emotion. Mob emotion and instincts. That is dangerous when a crowd gets like that. How is this happening in our universities right now? How has this become so normal? Well, we talk about the reasons why this has become normal. But I worry that we get a nerd to this. You know, oh, yep, I saw that on Twitter. Just more students doing what they always do. This is a communist struggle session. This is why people like James Lindsay and Christopher Rufo, and a lot of other brave people who've done the reading and done the research are constantly reminding people that this is neo-Marxist and it's communist. Because it is. I wanted to give you a sampling of something I've mentioned many times, but I don't think I've given you many examples. The... Cottage industry of apologetics for borderline personality disorder. I see this coming from people who call themselves mental health professionals. I see it coming from young people who congregate online in places like Tumblr or any other social media. They; th- these are often young people who have self-diagnosed. Um, And when I say young, let me let me just be candid. This is young girls mostly. Yeah, there are definitely some boys, but this is overwhelmingly young women because this is what young women do. This is common to teenage girls, Um, this kind of emotional incontinence and building yourself a place or a platform that has status within a community that all huddles around an idea of being ill together, being sick together. It's, it's exactly like the pro-anorexia online communities that were so alarming that started, I think, in the 21st century. I mean, anorexia and bulimia spread like wildfire among teenage girls well before we had social media, but this has made it infinitely worse. And, and trans, trans has taken its place, largely. It's the same demographic. It's the same young women. But it isn't just borderline personality disorder anymore that some of these young people are trying to normalize and claim as an identity and something that nobody should criticize. They're branching out into the other cluster B disorders, narcissistic personality disorder. And take a look at this one on your screen. Username is your fave has NPD. That's narcissistic personality disorder. No idea whether this person really does or not, although their behavior is certainly consistent with it. And here's the tweet. This was a response to me. I was complaining on Twitter about this push to normalize disordered behavior. And I said, they want a condition of immoral behavior to be morally whitewashed. Keep that in your mind. Keep the word behavior in your mind. And remember that I said it. It's going to be important. Your fave has NPD. Response to me wait till you find out a lot of people with ASPD, antisocial personality disorder, which is a synonym for psychopathy and sociopathy. A lot of people with ASPD have strong moral compasses and aren't evil demons. <laughs> Go on, pull the other one. The very definition of antisocial personality disorder, or as I prefer, psychopathy, is lack of conscience. Lack of moral conscience. (laughs) This conversation kept going. A lot of people jumped in, and I pulled a few shots to illustrate what these communities are like. Here's the next one. This is from, I can't even pronounce, it doesn't matter. It's just some made-up name anyway. Mental disorders are defined first and foremost by the thoughts and feelings and motivations behind behaviors, not surface-level observable traits. Cluster B disorders are much more than just, quote, manipulative behavior. Neurotypicals are perfectly capable of manipulation and abuse. Here's what's going on. They don't want you to criticize what is a character disorder, which leads to behavior that reflects bad character, bad, immoral behavior. They want to claim that you're bigoted, that you don't know what you're talking about, that there's so much more to it. Well, there's a lot more to it, and all of it's bad, all of it. There is nothing good about Cluster B whatsoever, not for the person, not for anyone around them. It is poison. It can kill you both the sufferer and the people around him. But this is the important part. Neurotypicals are perfectly capable of manipulation and abuse. This is a direct theft from discussions about autism. I talked about this on the audio only uh, this week. I think it was on Wednesday, but uh, you'll have to go back and, and find it. They want you to think of this the same way that you think of autism because autism, we believe, is an organic problem. Organic meaning there's actually a physical structural wiring problem, a neurological wiring problem in the brain that causes people with autism to be unable to understand certain things that other people understand more easily and to have different ways of categorizing the world and and acting in it, some of which cause problems. Autism is not a personality disorder. It's not a mood disorder. It's not borderline personality disorder. It's not narcissism. And it's certainly not psychopathy. But this is what they do. They co-opt language. If you're not careful and you don't notice these things, these little things I'm always pointing out, these subtle things, as everyone tells me, oh, that's so subtle. Yeah, they know that too. That's why they do it. If you don't notice this, you will get worn down. You'll start hearing neurotypical over and over again. Simply because you hear it repeated next to cluster B or any of these disorders, your brain, without your conscious thought, will start putting them next together, next to each other together. Watch out for this. So there's more discussion about destigmatizing cluster B disorders. You know, we can destigmatize the state of having A condition, but we can't destigmatize the behavior that comes from it. That's just simply letting people get away with anything they want. Next one I want to show you. Same person says, I don't care about normalization. I want destigmatization regardless of normality or abnormality. Yeah, well, you're not going to get it because that behavior should be stigmatized. When you behave the way cluster B's behave, You should be ashamed of that behavior. It's shameful. (laughs) And I pushed back against this, we're just like the autistics, and here's what I got from your fave has NPD. They actually are neurodivergent. They affect the brain itself, and there's no, quote, moral dimension. No disorder makes someone evil, and those with cluster Bs are perfectly capable of being good people. Someone chooses to be evil. Disorders don't cause that choice. This is bullshit. This is absolute bullshit. Whether you personally want to call people evil or call behavior evil or call nothing evil or call it something else, the bottom line is the same. Yes. Yes. Having a cluster B personality disorder in the overwhelming majority of cases tracks With the same characteristics that cause us to say this is a bad person or a badly behaved person or a person who's doing evil. It is not everybody. Some of the borderlines are softer. Some of them are not nearly as aggressive. But cluster B is not a cluster full of perfectly normal people who make good moral choices. (laughs) And they always accuse you of projection. That's, I got a lot of that. I'm just projecting. Well, you know, you just don't like your mother, so you're projecting everything. Next one says, to me, then stop responding and reflect on your hate and mocking of one of the most painful disorders to have. We lack emotional skin, emotional control, and suffer constant paranoia and delusions. But no, we made you scared or sad, so we're bad and like your abusive parents. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes, as a matter of fact, you are, like my abusive parents, who also suffered from having no emotional skin, no emotional control, paranoia, delusions, and the behavior that comes from that. One more. Notice what they're doing. They want you to close your eyes and they're telling it to you to your face. Stop looking at Cluster B through an outside I'm scared of you lens and try looking at it through the this is a painful medical disorder that literally affects their reality 24-7 and causes them constant pain. (sighs) Okay, mother, and I'm not projecting, I'm comparing because you sound exactly like her. This is step into my parlor, said the spider to the fly. I'm not really going to hurt you. I'm the one who's hurt. I remember right before I had the rupture with my mother, we were in a car getting on the highway. My mother was driving. We were going someplace she hadn't been before. So I had printed out a map from Google, and I made some handwritten notes on it, and I gave it to her. And I said, I'll let you look at the map and I'll also guide you because I take this route every day. She got very frustrated and flustered and started screaming in the car. She first started screaming at her husband. Um, and and I kept trying to calm things down. I was like, Mom, Mom, it's okay. Mom, you can pull over if you need to. Shut up! Just, just fucking stop it! Stop it! So I stopped it. And then when she asked for directions, and I froze and went... She's looking at me while I'm doing this. I'm scared to say anything. And then she says, oh, for Christ's sake, stop it and just spit it out. It's me. What are you scared of? That's what these people are doing. That's Cluster B. We're coming up on a break here, but I want to remind you because I've mentioned it. Please subscribe to us on audio. We've got um, 30-minute audio segments coming out Monday, Wednesday, Friday. You don't see them on video. They're only on your favorite podcast app. So Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, iTunes, whatever you like. Thanks, folks. See you on the other side. You know how podcasters are always asking you to hit the subscribe button? Well, this is us asking you to take a minute right now and be sure you've hit subscribe on your favorite video platform. Click that notification bell too, so you never miss our newest content. And don't forget to subscribe on audio too. We have audio only content that you won't find on any video platform. So don't miss out. Do you like Disaffected? Do you like it enough to help pay for it? We'd love to have your support to grow and maintain this show. Donors get special access to our monthly Zoom hangouts. They're off-camera and unscripted. We talk about what you want to talk about. There are two ways to join. Patreon users can go to patreon.com disaffected or visit subscribestar.com disaffected. Twitter didn't like our old account, so we made a new one. Follow at disaffectedp. That's disaffected and the letter P for show announcements and links. If you want our sass and snark, come see us on Getter at Disaffected Pod. Welcome back. I was talking with Kevin during the break. You're going to love this. So in his office suite in Albany, uh, there are several other businesses uh, that share the same hallway. And there's some sort of personal services uh, business next door. And the woman who runs it has a great big box outside of her door with a big label on it that says um, donations for Ukraine. Kevin, was there anything in that box? Okay, Kevin says there was nothing in the box. I think you should go put a can of Spam or something in there that would probably really piss her off. What is she going to do? Fill the box up with canned goods and tampons and floss and ship it by FedEx to Ukraine? help me okay we're gonna take this segment and talk about a really good article that I, um, it's much longer than I can share with you. I suggest you read the whole thing. It's on my friend Helen Dale's Substack newsletter. You may remember Helen. Uh, she was on a few months ago. She's a Brit-Australian. She's a novelist and a lawyer. We talked about her original cancellation back in the 1990s when she wrote a novel called The Hand That Signed the Paper. This is a guest article by Lorenzo Warby on Helen's Substack, and the title is, When Do We Notice the Misogyny? And the picture he used to accompany this will be familiar to you. Take a look here. This is that New York Times ad uh, showing the woman in profile, um, the ethnic-looking woman, just making sure she does not look white. Leanna is imagining Harry Potter without its creator. (laughs) So Lorenzo Warby opens up the article and talks about how The New York Times itself is participating in in what many feminists have called erasing women and erasing a particular woman and a single mother from her own creation, the world of Harry Potter, Joanne Rowling, because Joanne Rowling is a a turf. She hates the trans people because she believes that sex is real and women have sex-specific needs. and he asks some very good questions. The first one is If this were done in any other cause, in any other cause other than transactivism, would it be progressively acceptable to parse without comment stripping history's most commercially successful author from her creation? Would it? I think in race it probably would, but definitely transactivism. He goes on to say Writing such phenomenally successful books and creating a fictional world beloved by so many millions around the world is a striking achievement. A striking achievement by a woman, indeed a single mother, but an achievement that is now apparently better, even laudable, to imagine a way. For the author is no longer the right sort of woman. Mm. And who is... The right sort of woman. Lorenzo has an answer for that too. Quote, meanwhile, someone born with even continuing to possess a penis who declares themselves to be trans is absolutely the right sort of woman. Past or present possessors of penises now get to define themselves into being women and into places where females congregate, either voluntarily or compulsorily, venues, events, strip clubs, refuges, prisons. They get to trump women who never had penises in moral standing. Mm-hmm. They sure do. Because it is ma'am! Isn't it? So, what's driving this? What's behind this? We're all asking that. Lorenzo Warby's asking it, too he's got some good answers. I'm going to add some that that I that I think are are going on here too. But he says this looks a bit how might we say patriarchal. What it absolutely is is wildly misogynistic. He also notices what happens to women, like Joanne Rowling, but really to millions of of women who do not have the protection of wealth that someone like Joanne Rowling has. Women who dissent from trans activist bromides are targeted much more viciously than men who dissent. There is also a clear pattern of women on the progressive side of politics, or what passes for it nowadays, being targeted much more viciously than those on the conservative side of politics. He's right. And he gives an example of uh, the conservative MP in the UK, Liz Truss, who doesn't get nearly the flack. She also objects to to the trans overreach. She believes that sex is real. She believes that sex-specific services are necessary, that women are women and trans women are not women, although she won't say it that directly. And she doesn't get nearly the flack of somebody like feminist campaigner Julie Bindle, for example, who's famous in the UK for uh, working on behalf of women's causes, particularly battering and abuse, or liberal academics uh, like philosopher Kathleen Stock, who's basically been canceled by her university um, and has been at the center of firestorms over this, over objecting to this nonsense idea that men can simply be women by declaring that they're women. Back to Lorenzo. He says... Sadly, progressive women are more vulnerable. They are easier to pick on. They share more of the buttons that can be pushed, and they are more embedded in institutional and social milieu where ganging up on them works. Yep. Yep, that's true. An apologetic, soft, and fearful stance will always invite exploitation. There's a difference between being kind and being a doormat. But a lot of people have trouble finding that difference, and they end up being doormats. And abusive people wipe their feet on doormats. They look for them. But it's not just that progressive women are easier to pick on. He's right about that. It's also that it is progressive women themselves who are doing the enforcing of the trans agenda. There are very few progressive women out there who will speak against it. It seems to be part of a package deal in progressive politics. You have to be on board with trans. So I, you know, kudos to progressive women who will speak out against this nonsense. But there aren't that many of them. The vast majority of them are the ones who created this and are socially enforcing it. And Lorenzo Warby sees misogyny going on here. And a lot of people see what they call misogyny. But is it really misogyny? Is that the best descriptor? when this is overwhelmingly a female-led social movement. Sure, there are trans women, men, who target women. We all see them. We see them showing up in locker rooms. We see them uh, going into the Korean spa in L.A. and having an erection in there and then claiming that they're being discriminated against because it's female penis. We've all seen this. But... It's women numerically who are doing most of the clapping and cheering for this. Everyone I know who has been in some way canceled, they've been fired from their job, they've been told they have to be silent and can't speak outside their job on political issues of importance to them. Every single time that I am personally aware of, it has been women who have targeted these people. My job's been targeted several times for cancellation because of what I say about trans. And who has it been? Women between 25 and 45, with one exception of a man. And a lot of them, in the way they maneuver, have very obvious cluster B traits, at the very least. More from Lorenzo's article. Why this dramatic, persistent, and vicious misogyny? For the obvious reasons. Jealousy. If you really, really want to be a woman but were born male, then there are all sorts of aspects of being a woman you simply cannot replicate. Whatever hormones you take, whatever surgeries you undertake, you will remain shut out of the elemental experience of being a woman. Yep. More. You cannot have what natal women have naturally. You are quite likely to have problems passing as a woman and even more problems being sexually desirable as a woman, end quote. Yes. This is what autogynephilia is about. Autogynephilia means taking—it's a fetish. It's a paraphilia. It's not a (laughs) normal—we can get into that another time. It's a paraphilia. It's taking erotic pleasure in fantasizing that you are, in fact, a woman and that you are experiencing sexuality as a woman. Buffalo Bill in Silence of the Lambs was an autogonophiliac. You see this in men who divorce their wives in middle age and suddenly come out as a woman. You see this in men who harass and, and uh, on some occasions, murder lesbians. You see it in the trans women who get actual women fired from their jobs because these women won't say, yes, you're a woman just like me. Why don't you come and pee next to me in the stall? But is this misogyny? Is misogyny what's actually driving this? I think that it's more nearly that this issue and the women involved in it are convenient targets for plain old narcissistic abuse. Cluster B, motivated abuse. I, I suspect the psychology, the distorted psychology, the disturbed personality, I think that comes first. I don't think the ism, the misogyny, comes first. I think it's a convenient tool that is right at hand for an abusive person to use. And I think this about things like racism. I think it about homophobia. I think it about Islamophobia or almost any other actual bigotry you can think of? Unless people are are actually f- deeply factually deceived, and, and they honestly believe that some some person who fits into the other category is an actual danger, and some people are this deceived, you can understand if they believe these false things and they think such people are dangerous, you can see that as a motivation for fearing them or hating them or wanting to have them Uh, kept away from your sphere of life. But unless we're talking about those kinds of people, most people are unlikely to pathologically hate another group just for the hell of it. That's something that disturbed people are attracted to. I'm not saying that It's impossible to have prejudices or bigotries unless you have a personality disorder. Of course I'm not saying that. That would be ridiculous. But actual really deep-seated hatred usually comes from people with disturbed minds. And those disturbed minds precede the ism. I mean, was my mother child-phobic? Did she abuse her children for as many years as she did because she was afraid of or had you know an irrational fear hatred of children I don't think so I think that would be silly child phobia no my mother didn't hate children well she did not she did sometimes you know she changed her mind every few hours of course she's borderline but that's not where it came from her cluster B preceded her child abuse it's not as if well, anyway, I've said enough about that, and I want to know how can this how can misogyny really be the driver when it is the when of the people who support this the majority of them are women. Feminists talk a lot about what they call internalized misogyny, but I think it's closer to the truth that women like this who support this trans incursion they're acting out a role in an abuse drama that looks very like domestic abuse. They're led around by righteous-sounding people, often personality-disordered people with charisma. And these women who support it, they are the codependents. They're the enablers. They're the flying monkeys. Some of them are, you know, psychologically unbalanced too, but many of them are not. If you can see the relationship between activist so-called trans women and the actual women who carry out their desires and make HR, make everybody play pronoun games, and and make everybody put little badges on that say I'm a she-her. If you can see the relationship between these men who call themselves women, because this is benefiting them, they're getting narcissistic supply out of it, and the actual women doing it for them, if you can conceive of it the same way that you think of um, a marriage— An intimate partner relationship between a narcissistic abuser and a codependent or a borderline, it makes an awful lot more sense. I don't think this is about sexism or misogyny at all. I think those things arise. I think the abuse becomes what we might call misogynistic. But misogyny isn't the problem here. Cluster B is the problem. A couple other interesting things um, that Lorenzo Warby brought up, and, and I really do mean—it's a great article, and I think you should read it. I mean, obviously, I have some disagreements, or I'd add some things, but this I'm not slamming um, the article here. It's very perceptive. Listen to this. The other problem is that our entertainment industries regularly lie to us. In physical combat at full effort, a trained man of equal size to any woman is greatly advantaged. If the man is bigger, as men usually are, the advantage is even greater. Mm -hmm. And we've all seen this. He goes on to say, films where smaller women routinely beat bigger trained men or go toe-to-toe with them are lying to your face. And not in a a just-telling-a-story way. At least the female knight in Game of Thrones is really big, not a wee slip of a thing. When effective female knights, shield maidens, or warriors existed historically, they usually looked like Brienne of Tarth. And they were rare, simply because there are not that many big, strong women of that type. That's true. How many of these fantasy movies or superhero movies, which is all that ever comes out of Hollywood anymore, it seems, show women, tiny little women, lithe, well-worked-out women, but little little women, kick in the ass of these big muscle-bound guys whirling around and placing a kick in just the right way, and he goes flying across the room. <laughs> it's Physics doesn't work <laughs> like that. I mean, if you need to demonstrate it, just take one small object and one big object and throw the small object at the big object and see how far it moves. (laughs) So anyway, um, I recommend the article. Again, it's on Helen Dale's substack. Just type in Helen Dale substack. And the article is called, um, look at me, flew right out of it. Well it's about miss nope, No, now I've got to find it now. When do we notice the misogyny? Thank you. <laughs> Going to close up this segment with a couple of um couple of little virtue signals for you. <laughs> Just little bits and bobs I pick up from social media. <laughs> Take a look at Dr. Thomas Pigot, Pigott. Um well we know he's a man because he says he him Saucy little pick. Do you see him like that? He's like, oh, wait, where's my borderline glasses? I'm going to do him. <laughs> he says, I biked to work yesterday with my mask on. No issues, no bad vibes. Uphill both ways. It was ready to protect when I got in the door. <laughs> it was ready to protect when I got in the door. <laughs> Sounds like one of my fake commercial sponsors. Another one, University of Chicago professor Harold Pollack. (sighs) He says, as policymakers relax formal mandates, I'd ask students and colleagues to continue to mask up and distance. This respects our peers and colleagues who may be vulnerable slash immunocompromised, or who have caregiving roles that require protective measures. It's a basic form of respect for everyone. Yes, I believe he talks that way. I'm absolutely certain of it. I'll stake my paycheck on it. (laughs) We're going to a break. Do me a favor, though. Share our show on social media. And if you don't want to do that, share it privately with just one friend. Word of mouth will do more for us than anything else. See you next, uh, see you next week? No, see you in a minute after the break. (laughs) You know how podcasters are always asking you to hit the subscribe button? Well, this is us asking you to take a minute right now and be sure you've hit subscribe on your favorite video platform. Click that notification bell too, so you never miss our newest content. And don't forget to subscribe on audio too. We have audio only content that you won't find on any video platform. So don't miss out. Do you like Disaffected? Do you like it enough to help pay for it? We'd love to have your support to grow and maintain this show. Donors get special access to our monthly Zoom hangouts. They're off-camera and unscripted. We talk about what you want to talk about. There are two ways to join. Patreon users can go to patreon.com disaffected or visit subscribestar.com disaffected. Twitter didn't like our old account, so we made a new one. Follow at disaffectedp that's disaffected and the letter p for show announcements and links if you want our sass and snark come see us on getter at disaffected pod welcome back we'd love to have your support it costs money to do this kevin needs some new equipment we need some new software and i need a couple of new teeth what do you think i'm doing this for free (laughs) We really, really would appreciate your support. And if you do support us and sign up, you get invited every month to our donor-only Zoom hangouts where we talk off-camera, off-script. Patreon.com slash Disaffected or Subscribestar.com slash Disaffected. Thank you. We're going to close the show out by talking about rampant safetyism. Wrapping us all in bubble wrap, or for you Brits, cotton wool. We see it everywhere. The book by um, Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff called The Coddling of the American Mind is all about this. Helicopter parenting. Not allowing children to develop skills. Not allowing them to take risks. Thinking that your job as a parent is to keep them from any and all dangers and to solve any and all problems for them, including when they're in college and you end up calling the dean's office because Johnny didn't get the grade you wanted. Well, there's an interesting article in City Journal by the associate editor, Allison Schrager. Is she the associate editor? Where did I credit her? I think so, but she's certainly the author of the article. And she opens this this article by talking about a professional tightrope walker, a guy who stretches out line and walks over chasms as a stunt. You know, y'all you remember you from my generation remember Evil Knievel, right? When he would uh, jump motorcycles over things. So this guy's just a, a tightrope walker. She says. Nick Walenda, the tightrope walker, devotes significant time and energy to getting permits and complying with safety regulations that don't necessarily make him safe and may even expose him to danger. And then she tells about a conversation that she had with, with this man about how knowing that you have a safety net can actually be dangerous in some instances because it can make you sloppy and complacent. And no safety net is 100% foolproof. I think we forget that. I think we forget that. I'm going to put a quote on the screen for you. Americans have become intolerant of many risks that people once dealt with on a daily basis, as the COVID-19 pandemic has shown. Even 20 years ago, retreating to our homes for months on end at the government's urging, for a virus with COVID's risk profile would have been unthinkable. We've often heard during the pandemic that we can return to normal, quote, when it is safe. Indeed, we hear the word safe a lot these days. But it's often an unrealistic standard that no previous generation expected, end quote. Mm -hmm. I've got an example for you from my own childhood. Between 80 and 84, we lived in Southern California, and we spent the first couple of years in Fullerton in Orange County. And there was a wonderful park. I'm going to put it on the screen here. This is a recent shot of Gilman Park in Fullerton, California. I couldn't find one that, well, for a couple of reasons. I couldn't find one that, that really showed the grandeur of the park, but part of that is because the grandeur has been taken away. I loved this place when I was a kid. It's in a little valley between some really high hills. Um, there are weeping willows. There used to be little wooden footbridges across brooks, nooks and crannies to hide in. I mean, it was magical. It was the place you could imagine as, a, as the setting for, you know, knights in shining armor or, or a magical fantasy. We went there a lot. And I, I want to show you the next picture. And it's real blurry, and I'll tell you why. Because it warms the cockles of my heart. This image here is of one of the two concrete slides that I used to go down at Gilman Park. This, um, the reason this image is so blurry is because it's a still from, uh, no, not a video, Super 8 film, motion picture film, uh, taken in 1980. And I was at this park just a couple years after this was taken. Um, and if you're interested in looking at this, you happen to be a Southern California, just look up Gilman Park on YouTube. There's actually some motion picture of it. These concrete slides, there were two of them, and they were up at the top of a hill, and you would walk up. One side was sand, and the other side had uh, stairs on it, and you brought the bottom of a cardboard box because that helped you slide down the slide better. It was so fun, and one of the slides went through a tunnel, and they, they had to be at least 150 feet long. They were fabulous, and we would go up that hill and down those slides over and over again. Well, the city council took out the slides because it's liability. Someone could get hurt. They also took out the zip line. They took out the treehouse, They took out the motocross trails that dirt bikers used to use, and they took out all the traditional playground equipment. It used to be the most attended park in Fullerton, and now it is the least attended, according to... Uh, a community group uh, that did a write-up about Gilman Park. I mean, you see it all the time. Go past a playground these days. What do you see? You don't have merry grounds anymore that are made out of metal. You, well, you don't have them at all because children could be flung by centrifugal force and they might get hurt. They might fall into the grass. Oh, what grass? Everything is wood chips on plastic now. <laughs> and 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 the sorry, bumped the microphone, folks and the playground stuff is soft plastic that bleaches in the sun and that's going to crumble in 10 years and it's all very small you only go up 3 steps to go down a slide cuz anything else is dangerous it's it's incredible it is absolutely incredible to me back to Allison Schrager's article there are many reasons for our declining risk tolerance we were raised and live in a richer society where we need to take fewer risks The government plays a growing role in removing risk from our lives, from the financial system to the workplace and beyond. We wind up less used to confronting risk and less prepared for life's inevitable shocks. Mm -hmm. And it's not just in recreation. This has crept into the workplace. For 20 years, I have worked in the nonprofit sector, and one of the things that I have had to do is keep up with... The actions of state licensing and regulatory boards. There are licensing and regulatory boards for almost everything these days. It's not just physicians. It's plumbers, electricians, uh, funeral directors, cosmetologists, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And when I first started doing this, because I work in, in consumer education and protection, I had the naive idea that these licensing boards were there to actually keep people safe and to equitably – no, I can't – see, they've ruined the word – reasonably and judiciously adjudicate legitimate consumer complaints and prevent instances of fraud and mistreatment of consumers. I was wrong. The licensing boards are an absolute nightmare, and their primary function is to protect incumbents, people who are already in the business, from competition because they end up writing licensing laws, lobbying for them or writing regulations that restrict competition, that require all sorts of irrelevant education or very expensive equipment as a precondition for hanging your shingle out and doing business. These are anti-consumer, they are anti-entrepreneur, and if you're somebody with leftist sympathies and I don't know if you want, want to call it a leftist sympathy, I do care about consumer protection. I do think that consumers can be taken advantage of sometimes quite badly, and I think we need a mechanism to deal with that but that's not this and I say this after 20 years of experience if you gave me a button I could push that would get rid of these licensing boards I absolutely would and I would do it knowing that it would help consumers I didn't think I'd say that 20 years ago but then again I didn't know very much about this when I started if this interests you Take a look at the law firm called the Institute for Justice, or IJ. IJ is a unique law firm in D.C. They're a 501c3 nonprofit. They're a libertarian law firm, and their goal is protecting economic liberty, the right to make a living without having to cut through onerous and irrational bureaucratic red tape and pushback from competitors. They are the only law firm that focuses on this specifically, and they've taken on cases of Women who wanted to open a hair braiding studio, people who wanted to sell caskets who weren't in funeral homes, uh, people who wanted to make a living being a tour, gu- a tour guide in famous cities like Philadelphia and New Orleans, all of whom were shut down by the government for not having the proper license uh, and not being able to get it because the requirements are ridiculous. They take economic liberty seriously because they understand that it is foundational to liberty itself. Back to Allison's article. Long before COVID-19, risk-taking was increasingly discouraged. Between 1970 and 2019, the page count of the Federal Code of Regulations on Business and Industry thickened from 54,000 to more than 185,000 pages. State and local regulations can be even more of an economic burden, especially for small businesses. The number of jobs that require a license for instance, rose from 5% in the 1950s to 22% today. I think our welfare system is an example of how the government mommying takes risk away from us and can encourage us to stagnate in, in wages, in our aspirations for a career and building a better life. And I war with myself about this because I, I, it's my emotions talking here. I don't know how much of it's thinking. Have to have a good conversation with people about this. I want there to be a social safety net that protects people from the worst of what can happen when you're out on the street or you can't feed your kids. But there's got to be a better way to do it than the system we've got now, because it has simply created generation after generation of grinding poverty, ignorance, drug addiction, and domestic abuse. Sorry, that stuff is more common in the poor class, just a fact. More from the article. Risk aversion is holding many Americans back in non-economic ways, too. Psychologists believe that taking chances and confronting uncertainty are crucial to personal growth and our sense of dignity. Without them, curiosity dims and a work ethic can seem pointless. Why leave your parents' basement? This is why unconditional cash benefits from the government are a bad idea. End quote. She goes on to say, however, over the years... This risk reduction role has expanded to the point of being counterproductive. In some states, to take just two of innumerable examples, you can't braid hair without hundreds of hours of expensive training. Or, if you're a car maker, you can't sell to customers except through a dealer. I didn't know that. Somewhere along the way, the government's focus shifted from managing risk efficiently to eliminating it entirely, and with that change, wage growth and productivity has stagnated." End quote. One more. Risk taking is becoming a luxury of wealthier Americans. The costs and regulations associated with starting a business favor large incumbents or those with lots of capital already at their disposal. Moving to a big city that offers higher pay and better opportunities requires being able to afford high rents right out of college, largely because zoning regulations restrict new housing construction. Highly recommend this article. City Journal, again, and the uh, author is Allison Schrager, S-C-H-R-A, G-E-R Adults are not supposed to need parents we're not supposed to keep the training wheels on all the way into adulthood transferring the responsibility of mom and dad to keep us safe to Mr. President or the CDC extended adolescence is becoming permanent adolescence The more time passes, the fewer of us remember what it used to be like. Take my generation. Latchkey kids were talked about with a lot of disapproval, a lot of how sad, a lot of tut-tutting. And sure, something was going wrong when both parents had to work in order to survive and no one was at home to greet us. But how much danger... Were we really in, we latchkey kids? I was one of them. Was it really a bad thing that kids like me learned to let ourselves in the house, fix a simple meal, take, make a snack, take care of the younger brother and sister until mom got home? Was Laura Ingalls being abused because she was given the responsibility of leading the livestock out into the pasture all by herself as a little girl and just promising Ma that she'd be home by supper time, <laughs> Carolyn Ingalls would be in jail today for leaving Laura and Mary in the wagon while she popped into Olsen's mercantile for lamp oil. <laughs> Funny, yeah, but I'm absolutely right, and you know I am. She'd be in jail. People call the cops these days on a mom who quickly ducks away from the gas pump to pay the cashier while her kids are in the car. It's insane. You are not a child. We are all fully grown up people, chronologically anyway. But emotionally, many of us are still children and it's getting worse. Humans invest the most time of any animal in child rearing any animal on the planet we come out of the womb unlike other animals absolutely helpless and we stay that way for a while and we stay under our care under the care of our parents until we're at least 18 years old isn't that long enough I'll see you next week You know how podcasters are always asking you to hit the subscribe button? Well, this is us asking you to take a minute right now and be sure you've hit subscribe on your favorite video platform. Click that notification bell, too, so you never miss our newest content. And don't forget to subscribe on audio, too. We have audio-only content that you won't find on any video platform, so don't miss out. Twitter didn't like our old account, so we made a new one. Follow at disaffected p that's disaffected and the letter p for show announcements and links if you want our sass and snark come see us on getter at disaffected pod do you like disaffected do you like it enough to help pay for it we'd love to have your support to grow and maintain this show donors get special access to our monthly zoom hangouts they're off camera and unscripted we talk about what you want to talk about there are two ways to join Patreon users can go to patreon.com/disaffected or visit subscribestar.com/disaffected.